Welcome to The Lowdown, KMXT's show dedicated to giving you the up-to-date information we have available on the COVID-19 outbreak and how it's impacting life on Kodiak Island. The Lowdown will focus on the facts as provided to us by local and state officials. During this edition of the show, we give you access to local physicians and public health experts with information on COVID-19 and recommendations related to it. If you have a question for our guests, please email it to lowdown at kmxt.org or call KMXT at 486-3181. All right, and welcome to this week's um, uh, episode of The Lowdown. We have, um, this is our Doc of the Rock episode that we've been kind of keeping around um, until... uh, until we need to do more episodes of of the lowdown, which we might see some more episodes coming in the next um, in the next few weeks as schools reopen and during a election season. But for now, the um, our doctors and public health officials are keeping us up to date with um, with the facts and wisdom and sometimes a new word that we get to learn um, every week. So, um, in the studio with me are uh, Dr. Shanna Theobald from the Kodiak Island Ambulatory Clinic and Dr. Steve Smith from um, Providence um, Hospital and our um, local uh, public health um, official and, um, and nurse, um, Elsa DeHart. Um, welcome, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Thanks again for spending um, an hour of your um, Wednesday morning um, with us as we um, dig into um, some of the new developments and new um, rumors and myths and um, and all sorts of uh, um, changes to policies and things. So let's go ahead and just get started with um, our local Kodiak COVID um, update. Um, so Elsa, um, what are we looking at now in terms of in terms of our numbers? Oh, and we just have a uh, Dr. Oh, yeah. Curtis Mortensen just uh, popped in. So. Uh, from KCHC, so welcome. Um, so um, yeah, Elsa, could you give us an update on where we are right now? Yeah, sure, so right now um, we have had in total 32 cases in Kodiak. Um, we had one new one come in last night with with our seafood workers. There have been, so right now there are 19 of them are recovered, One's, one of them, their last day is today. So really 11 of them, um, were transported off the island for isolation because they had been in a remote area and they thought that was safer, which was good. One was hospitalized, and then hospitalized we d- in Anchorage. Yeah. Okay. And then we still have um, one here on the island, so that's kind of where we are. And just you know, it's kind of interesting. Our median age here in Kodiak has been 35, mm-hmm. which so. which kind of tracks with the the rest of the state, right? Mm-hmm. In that late 20s to 30s uh... i think they're even seeing it lower in a lot of places like in the younger 20s up to like 30 so we're a little older than kind of the the normal cohort of young 20 of 20 year olds so it uh do we think maybe it's is it like the the fishing industry or the seafood processing industry which usually has younger um employees and that's where we've seen some of the big um i don't know outbreak is the right word but they're they're pretty spread out too Hmm. and then we've had you know we've had a little tiny person and we've had elders and so it's pretty much been the whole range Mm. so So one one new one um today on on the island Mm -hmm. and um all the rest have been um are quarantining off island right and then one person's just on their last day today so they will be done today 
Yeah, all right, fingers crossed. Well, so. Yeah, they've done well. <laughs> oh, good, good. Um, all right, so we've got we got some questions about um, uh, uh, testing and travel um, local, so we can get started with those. Um, we've uh, received a couple of uh, questions and comments from listeners who say that the the lines for testing over at East Elementary are long, are longer than longer than usual. Um, and that um, a few people who were feeling symptomatic um, went and got tested and then were told that, nope, it's just a cold. So are we seeing, um, I don't know, I thought everybody was supposed to be at home. Is there a cold going around? <laughs> and how, you know, and then as we're entering into flu season and we see those symptoms come up, what are we expecting in, term of, in terms of treatment, or not treatment, but testing and when, as these symptoms kind of come back? going to be doing a lot of testing. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, the lines at East Elementary, I, th I think, are, um, you know, there's there's definitely lines there. I think that compared to most parts in the country, like the ability to get testing quickly is, is much better here than it is elsewhere. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's going to be some lines. But in general, the waits I've heard about are, you know, certainly half an hour or less. And, oh, and, fantastic. And so that's not like... Um, you know, that too terrible hmm. um, compared to other places where you wait for hours, might have to drive hours to get to a place where you can get testing in right. other locations. So, um, yeah, there's going to, you know, it's not when it, we first started, it was like we'd have five people test a day at the East Elementary site. And so it's changed, you know, we're testing a lot of people there. Hmm. So um, the the whole thought with, you know, if you test negative and you're having upper respiratory, you know, let's say you have a cough and runny nose congestion, I mean, just because COVID's here doesn't mean that the run-of-the-mill common cold isn't going to be here. And once flu season starts, doesn't mean that flu is going to be all of a sudden not in existent. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing we did see for a while is when people were being, when we were really under those hunker-down orders, we didn't see a lot of illness. And that's because people were hunkering down mm -hmm. and, and not being around. So we would expect that as people mingle more, as, as people do more social things, as school starts, you know, I, I think that this is one of the things that we're going to face is that there's a lot of people who are going to develop symptoms that are consistent with COVID mm -hmm. that don't have COVID. And so, um, you know, that that's where the testing is very reassuring. Um, it's not, I, I would say it's not a get out of jail free card, uh, you know, as far as, um, you know, you can, there's still a false negative rate. So it's not like, you know, if you have a, if you have cough and cold and fevers, we would probably still recommend that you isolate yourself because, you know, even if you have a negative COVID test, first of all, you could infect others with whatever virus you have or, or mm -hmm. whatever illness you have. But then second of all, there is potentially, there, there is still a risk of false negatives even with that test. Hmm. Yeah. I'm going to add a couple of things. I think the testing, the wait lines are variable. I got tested last Friday over at the tent and there was no wait at all. I just drove in, got tested, drove out. And then I think the, the cold cough flu, we've been testing me several times symptomatic people you know two three times as long as they're symptomatic and hmm. not getting better and a lot of them have been negative so at that point we're thinking yes maybe it is more of the common flu but get tested the the big plug is don't be deterred from getting testing for weight lines and don't be deterred from getting testing because you think there's a common bug going around because it might not be and testing is the only way that we're going to keep a pulse on what's going on in kodiak and then 
I think the false negatives are more in um, asymptomatic people that they're seeing, that really when people develop symptoms, there are fewer false negatives. But it's still mm -hmm. a really good idea. Yeah. I mean, yeah. any test has a false negative rate. So, you know, it does, you know, you can never get 100% sensitivity, right? So, like, um, so, you know, I think that we have to be at least judicious if you're highly symptomatic, you know, just like we tell somebody in a normal time, if you have a fever, you know, and the, if you're coughing a ton, you probably should stay home and try and avoid, you know, giving that to other people, whether that's COVID or whether that's the common cold. But yeah. we're just not, that's not the norm that we've operated under. It's just, this has caused it to be a little bit more, um, you know, the where we're, we're going to be a little bit more diligent on that. But I totally agree with Shanna. If, if you have symptoms you you should be tested mm -hmm. you should definitely be tested um and even even if you think it's allergies or the cold just yes. just yep. do it yep. you won't know until you get tested and even then still not perfect but at least you <laughs> at least we're getting more That's information yeah. Yeah. yeah and they just yeah. they're just coming out with the id9 or developing a new cartridge that's supposed to be even more specific so hopefully that'll be soon yeah they're also developing new cartridges that contain the flu test, um, strep throat, and COVID test, so you can kind of oh. get the package mm -hmm. results the all package together. Deal. Yeah. I, I, I was just about I was just about to ask <laughs> that it would be they neat if you could get one test and then it will tell you, yeah. you know, what uh, what it is. So that would be. Cepheid yeah. is the brand of testing that is really making these package deals. And also, I know the state of Alaska, Dr. Ann Zink last night said that they're really trying to acquire a lot more machines, especially for rural Alaska, hmm. of the Cepheid, and that's the one that's going to make that four cartridge A little test. more yeah. expensive. Yes. Quite a bit but more. I think, We're you know, and I think the other, it is a little bit complicated. I, I will say, and I, this is probably a good thing to kind of say on this, this, in this format, but, like, we get a lot of calls from patients in the mornings saying, you know, I have a sore throat. I really want to know if I have strep throat. And, mm. you know, typically we'd have that patient come right in. But because of, you know, the current scenario, we are testing them first, all those patients first, before we would bring them into the clinic to be able to check them for strep throat or those type of things. And so, you know, I would just encourage patients to have some patience in that process. Um, no pun intended. But, like, I think that um, we are just doing the best we can to try and protect our staff. And, and, and in order to do that, really the only way, if you have symptoms consistent with COVID, which that list is quite long now, you know, um, we we have to get you tested before we see you. Otherwise, we are putting our whole staff in danger. And so I, I just would encourage um, people to have, we said last week, you know, a lot of grace is required in this time mm -hmm. for everybody. Um, and I think that um, just for patients to be understanding that we're trying to take the best precautions to keep our, our, our uh, staff safe, so. Well, and yeah. I think the one thing that the seafood industry kind of outbreak that we've had in this remote area shows how quickly it can spread how easily among people and you were talking about another little outbreak well uh, what i was <clears throat> referring to was over at brooks camp they um they've actually closed down the um the bear viewing and they had mm -hmm. staff over there who were there had been isolated tested and they're in isolation and they're very um, diligent about wearing their masks at all times. You have to have a little briefing, but it's done with six feet apart. You're outside. And yet they've had, uh, I believe, three staff members who tested positive without any real knowledge of how they received that. So that's, that's why we're all trying to be really um, careful about exposing people. 
And Curtis brought up a good point about, you know, being graceful and it's going to take some time to wait. You know, we're lucky on this island. Um, in the emergency room, rarely are we so busy that somebody has to wait the typical mm -hmm. wait times, even in Anchorage, which could be four or six hours. And, and we've been really spoiled here. And now all of a sudden we're all asked to just maybe wait longer in line at the testing tent or at the clinics because we're trying to keep everybody safe. So I, I really appreciate everybody's, you know, grace and mm -hmm. understanding that we're trying to keep everybody safe. And it isn't as quick as it used to be. Mm -hmm. Circling back to um, the, the flu, um, it is... We, we, we don't know what this next flu season is necessarily going to look like. Do we have any indication of like um, how COVID interacts with somebody who has influenza? Um, and, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, COVID is kind of like a, a strand, a version, an adaptation of influenza? No, something no, completely, no, different. Different. completely okay. different. Yeah, it's a different virus type. Right. Um, and uh, as far as does it interact I haven't seen anything about like how people that are co-infected with flu and and uh, coronavirus necessarily like if there's any sort of thing that there. But um, I would assume that if you're if you have both, then that's not good. That yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I probably probably more likely to get very sick sure, if you have yeah. both at the same time. It'll but start popping up here soon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> from yeah. the studies, I think there's about a two percent co-infection rate. At least that's what the data we had from China and Italy oh. before. Hmm. And then actually, we're watching really closely. Doctor, I listened to Doctor Osterholm last night podcast, and he was saying we're watching closely. You know, the southern hemisphere, they're in their winter with you know coronavirus and influenza season. And so far, the rates of influenza in Australia and New Zealand are so much lower than they normally are during this during the winter season. And there is a question of whether it's just because everyone's isolating so much because of coronavirus mm -hmm. or if there's some kind of interaction where mm -hmm. coronavirus keeps influenza from infecting. Probably not that, but that's, you know, everything's a possibility at this point and hmm. being looked into. But this year so far, I mean, knock on wood, it seems like influenza is less than it has been in, oh, in past years. You know, we, ju we just watched the press conference last night of the uh, premiere of Victoria. Um, uh, they have, I think, about 113 deaths um, and um, a, a few thousand cases. And so they're, they're going on like extreme lockdown for mm -hmm. the next six weeks. Um, no one is allowed to leave their home except for one person that they designate who can go out no further than five kilometers from their home to to shop and to do whatever and um, even you know to exercise for one hour no further than five kilometers from their home and then they and then they have to go home and they are so they are shutting everything down for for thirty days I think it's um between thirty days and and, and, and six weeks yeah yeah, yeah. so um, uh, we just yeah it's it's just remarkable how everybody's like. And, and Victoria's like, yeah, let's do it, you know. And <laughs> I think that's what New Zealand did. Yep, yeah, that's really what New Melbourne, yeah. yeah, it's doing the same right. thing right now. They're having an outbreak and kind of locking everything down again. And that's exactly, I mean, it is. It spreads like a forest fire. And the same way we kind of contain, mitigate fires from sp spreading is what we're going to have to do with coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be the next several months to a year, yeah. I think, from the pattern we're seeing. So um, I kind of have a personal question here. Can you look at this rash? I'm just kidding. Um, 
<laughs> you knew oh, it was no. coming. You knew it was coming. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I am going to be taking my daughter to college here in about uh, a couple of weeks um, up to Fairbanks. Um, so and then we have um, somebody, uh, somebody else who is who's, who will who also be traveling soon. So um, I think there's uh, there's a, maybe a little bit of confusion. One before leaving Kodiak, what should I do? Should I get tested before leaving Kodiak? We're staying in state. We don't um, have a lot in Kodiak, yeah. so I wouldn't worry as much about no. that. And traveling within state does not require testing. Right. But Fairbanks is hot, red hot right now. You know, um, they're one of the hot spots in the state. So I think I would definitely be really careful when you come home. Mm -hmm. um, but you, you know, if you caught it the day you left Fairbanks, it's not going to show up for about a week. So you know, even if you got tested immediately when you got back, it'd be like a week until it might really um, be and a positive. Our plan is to rent an RV and just kind of <laughs> isolate <Right>. the family <laughs> unit in the RV yeah. <laughs> for the whole trip. Well, so Jared, you're doing what a responsible, mm -hmm. caring person would do. Oh, you're going to isolate. You're going to wear a mask. You're going to keep distancing, and that's you know whether it's in-state or out-of-state travel, you still have to do that. But I think your risk of in-state doing that is a lot less. Yep. But you have to take, you know, um, all those precautions. Right. And, and and if and we were going out of state, then we would have to look at what that state's yes. uh, exactly. uh, requirements. Um, to well, go there and then you'd have to do it to come home yes so state residents still have to follow the same right. procedures for coming back if they're coming back yeah. which is um having that negative test within, within 72, 72 hours, hours. Yeah. okay the only difference is alaska residents can still get tested at the anchorage airport yes. um, whereas out-of-state residents no longer can without paying a fee okay okay and i've had um i had one kid tell me that in, in anchorage they made them do the test themselves well, they're self-collection, self yeah, okay. which is okay. very effective. Yeah. We are offering that as well mm -hmm. because it is actually just as effective in a couple of the studies. It was hmm. more effective when patients did it themselves. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But other, I mean, I think it's usually, you know, a preference. If you feel like you can and want to, we offer that. And if they want to be swabbed by somebody, we offer that as well. Hmm. But I'm not sure what Anchorage is doing. Yeah, they were, I know that as of a few weeks ago, they were not doing the self-collection, but... I'm kind of happy to hear that they are because yeah. it's, it's certainly, I think that for a few reasons. One is I think patient comfort is greater because mm -hmm. you can just do it yourself. You don't have to go quite as deep. Mm -hmm. And then um, the second part of it is is that it, it doesn't put as many people in harm's way. Mm -hmm. So like yep. if you're, the, the, the most dangerous position to be in is the one collecting the swab. Mm. And so if, if you can avoid having that happen, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think we've seen study after study that have shown that mm -hmm. the actual results are just as reliable. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's it's a great way to go. Agree. And so then, and then um, coming back, yeah, get tested in the Anchorage airport, or you can get tested here at the the Kodiak airport. And then while you're waiting for your results, you just go home and quarantine. hunker down and hunker down <laughs> until yeah. you get until you get the quarantine is still what's recommended for yeah. everybody returning because you really don't it's know. Really it's the best. Yeah, yeah. At, at, it's at that ten to fourteen day mark where ninety percent of people might start showing symptoms and or have a positive test, but before that, you know, it's decreasing potential that you will know and or test positive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw I've seen people in in reading cases through the state they were sick on their fourth got the test exactly. on their fourteenth day and then like day fifteen they were sick sick. Yeah. Oh goodness. So it can really be that yeah. Well that and long. I I think the common sense thing, even in your scenario where you're traveling in state, is is when you do get back 
even though you've traveled in state and you've taken all the precautions is, you know, I think being even a little bit more vigilant and like kind of the, how much you are interacting with people when mm -hmm. you get back. I, I think it just mm -hmm. makes common sense of, mm -hmm. even though that's not a state mandate, that's not any sort of, you know, thing, but like, you know, just that's a time to really keep your bubble small when you first get back from any travel, um, because that's when you're probably most likely to potentially um, have it, uh, even if you're asymptomatic. So um, even though we, we make a big delineation between out-of-state travel and in-state travel, I think that we, you got at least kind of just a common sense approach to it when mm -hmm. you get back, it's probably reasonable. And right now with the numbers in Anchorage yeah. and Fairbanks, Both you're not any safer there than you are in Seattle. In California, yeah, Arizona, yeah. Florida. <clears throat> Poor Anchorage. Yeah, they're getting they're getting a lot. Um, let's see. Okay, all right. Mask, uh, social media rumor of the week. I feel like we should have a special segment with its, like, its own um, intro music. or So we'll, we'll get to work on that. All right, so um, the one I saw pop up a lot this week was Legionnaire's Disease. Which um, I have, I mean, I, I, I've heard of it, but so first, um, can you explain what is Legionnaire's disease and then uh, the, uh, the idea of, like, again, wearing a mask accumulates whatever and then it's going to turn into Legionnaire's disease inside of your, um, inside of your lungs. So what is, what is Legionnaire's disease? It's such an interesting name for a disease. Legionnaires, it's a bacterial infection that typically causes pneumonia. It's from Legionella bacteria that replicates in a really moist environment. So water, you know, any kind of air conditioner where the water is sitting for a while or heating elements where it's heated by water heating or soft cheeses, it tends to be um, found in. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> my wife loves soft cheese. <laughs> not, as, not as frequently. And um, yeah, so it's, it tends to be kind of through respiratory, um, you know, transmission. Hmm. And um, the rumors that I read about are that wearing a mask can actually cause Legionnaire's disease. And that has been debunked, you know, by the American Lung mm -hmm. Association, a lot of the pulmonary kind of um, associations. And right now the risk of Legionnaire's is actually highest in going back to offices because the water systems have been sitting mm -hmm. stagnant throughout oh. the COVID epidemic, a lot of the, you know, air conditioning units haven't been running or the heating elements haven't been running. And, and so that's how it started, really it was like in, a, in an air conditioning pool, like some stagnant water and then got spread through a convention of Legionnaires. Yes. And that's how it got to be Legionnaires. Okay. It was at the Legionnaires Hotel. Legionnaires Hotel. <laughs> in the 60s, yeah. I think, or some, somewhere or back in time. But yeah, so now there is uh, increased risk for Legionnaires, but it is not through mask wearing. And you cannot contract pneumonia or any respiratory infections from wearing the mask. The, the main um, studies have shown that the main mask kind of related complications are just anxiety, you know, feeling stifled. Increase in mm -hmm. carbon, or carbon monoxide in the mask is not shown to be significant no. for people. And there really are no significant health risks from wearing the mask. Most of it is more, you know, the anxiety. And occasionally, you know, people feel suffocated, but it, yeah. Go to a big open space, take your mask off, breathe. <laughs> you, it, it's not a significant health problem. Anecdotally, the people I've had that have had some of the worst problems are people that have sinus trouble. Yeah. Like yeah. The, anecdotally, that's yeah. just in, in, as I've seen people and, and the, the, the folks that seem to have the most trouble are those that have the sinus mm -hmm. issues. I, it must put some pressure on that area that just is very uncomfortable yeah. for them. 
And so um, that's the, I, I do have, you know, we talk a lot on here about, you know, and I'm a huge proponent of mask wearing, obviously I'm t- saying that every day, all the time and on this show every week. But, um, you know, I do have empathy for people that have, a, a, you know, poor tolerance of wearing the masks. I, it's not, not to say that there's certain people that have much more trouble wearing them, but I think that, you know, if for employers to work with their staff that, um, you know, just can't tolerate the mask, if, if people can't, like working with them to put them in positions where they don't have to be mm-hmm. in close proximity to people. Uh, I know that, that we've done that a little bit with some of our employees at the clinic where we've, we, that, that struggle more with it. But the fact is, if it's merely discomfort, it's not the most comfortable thing in the world. We all get that. Um, but, you know, kind of thinking about the public good in as we have these discussions. But there are probably some people that have significant more discomfort or more difficulty. I think the people that have claustrophobia or severe anxiety are another group that I worry about too. Mm-hmm. But um, anyways, so, I still want, I still wear your masks. Just. And there are a lot of different kinds too. Right. So you can try yes. some different, is that what you're going to say? Yeah. yeah, I was going to say there's lots of options out there. And, and I have to say that, you know, the there's always this, well, I can get a medical clearance not to wear it. And I'm like, come on, folks, if you really have a medical condition that precludes you from wearing a mask you should not be out in public it's you're going to be in trouble but i've been i've seen it at the airport you know and some young healthy person go well i have a doctor's excuse and and i think we as health care providers have to do but there is no excuse not to wear a mask and be out in public i'm 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 pretty adamant about that um, I'm sure somebody will have an argument, but if if you have a medical condition and you're not wearing a mask, then you shouldn't be out. Uh, it, it's not fun. We don't like our masks, but it's a reality that we have to live with or try. We want to live with because we want to live. Yeah. Well, and, and let me clarify too. From the CDC's recommendations on masks, there's there's three categories in which people mm-hmm. fall under potentially. A mask exemption. One is under the age of two. So those young kids, it's a suffocation risk. So you don't want, you know, I've seen that. I've seen people in public trying to put the little mask on their two-year-old. And, uh, but, you know, so, so that, that age group's exempt because of the suffocation risk. Um, the other group is those that are mentally or physically handicapped to the point where they couldn't take it off themselves. If they're incapacitated to the point where they couldn't take the mask off themselves, mm. then, then that's a group that probably shouldn't have them on. And then the third is this big grab bag of, of increased shortness of breath. And, you know, unfortunately, that's a, just a big, wide, you know, range of things. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would say is, you know, there's, I think I've written one mask exemption, so don't, don't come to me for that, I guess. But, um, <laughs> but and it, it was in somebody who has severe COPD, is on oxygen all the time, oh, sure. and, and under the assumption that they're not going out in public. Mm-hmm. They're, they're really not. And so I said, I can write this for you, but, you know, you shouldn't be in a position where, you be, where you're in this mm. situation anyways, because they would be at super high risk if they got COVID to, to die, essentially. So. And there are more comfortable masks. The ductile mm-hmm. masks mm-hmm. really give you a lot more space compared to the ones that are pressed up closer to your face yeah and then the, the cloth ones and um i know cdc recommends the three layer for cloth ones the outside layer mm-hmm. it should be water res- or could be water resistant that would help from you know getting particles through it and then a inner layer that is water absorbent so it kind of absorbs your own moisture and then a filter layer in the middle mm-hmm. and those i think you know that is a really good safety precaution and comfortable that mm. yeah um, and uh, we just bought some masks made out of hemp 
and they are the most comfortable masks. They're <laughs> tight fitting, and they have that that inner layer to kind of absorb the. I think it, I think it's on an only two layer um, cloth masks, but um, it's like putting a pillow on your face. It's yeah. so it's so yeah. comfortable. So we're gonna well, we're gonna get good at this. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, the mask designers are are going are going nuts right now. It's, it's great. So how what what is a properly fitting mask? So. Um, I'm, I'm one that's, that's pretty tight. I can feel it's got, I've got, you know, um, there's a, there's a little exposure like right, right, uh, uh, down here, but, um, uh, we've heard that properly fitting means that you've got to have the, the nose wire thing, you know, to keep your glasses from fogging up. So how, how would you describe what is a properly fitting mask? Do you want to take that one, Steve? So I think it depends on what arena you're in. So like for those of us over there in the hospital in the ER where we have really close patient contact where we're in N95s that have been fit tested for us. So we have oh. a much higher, I mean, we're wearing a mask that doesn't leak. It protects us and the patient, but we're in a very close contact arena. I mean, I think when you go further out for the general public, any mask that covers your nose and mouth is always good and then you can get into the discussion about well how tight should it fit but i mean the the first for for most of us is just that mask that covers both the nose and the mouth and in you know a mask on your mouth without your nose <laughs> doesn't do a lot <laughs> you know it catches the drip and that's about it <laughs> Um, so I, I mean, I, in, you know, for Curtis and Shanna, you guys are kind of out more on the front lines. So my definition of a properly fitting mask is pretty narrow. Yeah. For the general community, I think the CDC basically says cover, you know, the bridge of your nose, under your chin, and then the sides, and have mm -hmm. as minimal gapping as possible. Obviously, it, they're not going to be perfect. Cloth masks may or may not have that wire nose, you know, the um, band that goes across your nose bridge and allows you to, like, custom fit it. Um, but yeah, the, the less air escaping around your mask, the better. And it's on a continuum. It's not going to be 100% no. perfect for mm -hmm. the non-fit-tested non N95s that we we have to do testing under this um, shield where we actually, oh, right. they sense aerosol particles coming mm -hmm. through the mask. And if it doesn't, if you get aerosol particles on the inside, you, you don't pass that fit yeah. testing. Oh, interesting. So it's yeah. very, very... Highly and, specific, and you have to move all different ways. Yeah, breathe, breathe bend over, breathe, look around. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, a whole bunch of manipulations to make sure that nothing's escaping. But yeah. that's only in the healthcare. Setting. You know, huh. and when you wear one of those masks for twelve hours, you're yes. more than happy to get rid of it. <laughs> so I don't want the general public having to wear that type. Of, we would get noncompliance everywhere. Sure. Yeah. And yeah. I'd rather see maybe not a perfect one, mm -hmm. mm. but one that somebody's wearing and you know if, even if they get a little bit of airflow it does minimize that the uh, forward burst yeah. of and i know steve talked about this a few weeks ago but the other thing is some of the n95s that are designed for um like construction use and some of even just the general masks mm -hmm. have that little valve and unfortunately uh, the valve makes it easier to breathe it, like it, it does it, it allows you to breathe out easier and stuff but um that's great for construction purposes when you're trying to keep the um, asbestos mm -hmm. out. 
because it's a one-way valve. But for an infectious standpoint, you're breathing out that air, and it's just coming out that valve. Jet, and, yeah. and so um, these masks that where people have this valve, it's probably a little counterproductive from a standpoint of infection spread. Um, and you're seeing more. I feel like I've seen more of these in the past month, sure. probably, mm -hmm. than before, because it is easier to breathe with them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, good reason. People and a lot are... of people have them around. Yeah. And mm -hmm. it says N95, right. and they're like, "Oh, that's good." That's yeah, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a good so, being aware that 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 valve is a one-way valve, it means that you're probably protected breathing in, but you're you're spreading whatever your germs are out. So it's probably not as protective for other people hmm. if you're wearing it. Um, all right, so uh, this next segment, this is like the, the, the weird, the, the weird like statistic or study uh, related to, to COVID. We, again, we should probably come up with some music for this one. Um, so um, a, a couple of things, there's there's one. Um, so I, I, I work in higher education and um, uh, some colleagues, oh, this is, a, this is a Twitter thing, sorry, Dr. Smith. Um, <laughs> a, a Twitter story that came in from a, from a colleague uh, who said that, um, Brand new student coming to Florida from out of state, coming to college, they have to have a negative test. Well, they have to quarantine. They didn't want to do that. Somebody told the student that they could buy a negative test or negative, you know, uh, so um, and and then present it. So apparently there's something going with going on with college students right now. I don't know where they're finding this online, but um, their papers maybe their there's papers. some someplace on the dark web now where you can buy uh whatever the form looks like uh uh that signifies a negative you don't have to necessarily respond to that but <laughs> just thought i would let you know i don't think we're gonna have a lot of college students coming here um from out of state but uh, uh i don't know i found that really i found it just really interesting you know they'd rather buy that that negative people are buying as well little cards that say they don't have to wear a mask yeah, they're yeah. buying those online. Mm. Why does that not surprise me? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me like, right. Okay. Yeah, and then the other thing, um, uh, this one I'd like your your thoughts on. So scientists in Russia discovered that ninety percent of the virus's particles die in room temperature water within twenty four hours, and ninety nine point nine percent of the particles die within seventy two hours. The virus does not multiply in dechlorinated and seawater, but it can remain viable. And chlorinated water kills it. Also, boiling water kills it. And this is not an endorsement of drinking <laughs> boiling water or even chlorinated water. But um, uh, uh, how useful is that information, if at all? Well, I've been waiting for the time I can go back to the pool and swim. I was kind of, I, I've been waiting for research that comes out about this. And, um, but I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a singular study, which is, right. you know, you, it's hard to know how to generalize that. But um, overall, that's, that's um, positive, I think, in the way of, of uh, looking at sort of um, from getting back in the pool, potentially. Chlorine sounds like it's fairly protective. Um, that's, that would be a, a thing in the direction of saying that that's a, a more safe activity potentially to do. Although I will say with swimming, you still are breathing in the yes. air. So like, then where does that go? I'm not sure. Yeah, I guess. We, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you're sharing the lane with somebody, you know. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't know exactly other than um, to say that, you know, it's interesting. I don't know how to generalize that necessarily. Yeah. Does that, does that kind of track with what we know about other viruses? So within, yeah, usually 20, a day or two, I think most viruses are known to be in the surfaces and viable. Some are, I mean, some are very quick lived out once they're outside of a cell environment, like four to six hours. But oh, wow. Yeah. 24 hours is 
24 to 72 hours is kind of a long time for regular out regular water oh interesting so for but COVID, too, I, I think that most of the more current studies have shown that they're not thinking it's as much on surfaces as the bigger right. the bigger worry isn't on surfaces as it is person to person. Mm -hmm. yeah. transmission, for transmission. I guess I won't go to the pool then. Also. <laughs> yeah. Oh, darn. You can swim in the ocean. It's okay. yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you did when you were a teen. You yeah. put a dry suit on and yeah. went swimming in the ocean. I know it. <laughs> Um, the next one is, uh, uh, so uh, um, APR and Alaska Public News ran a story yesterday, and I think I'd sent you even some questions about this um, uh, yesterday to, uh, to prepare for the show. So I'm going to um, read this news story, play just a couple of clips, um, and, and get, your, get your response to this. Um, let's see, let me pull, I think that's the right one. Um, so uh, uh, this comes from um, Casey Grove. Um, with Alaska Public Media. If you've had COVID and recovered, it's possible that your blood could help others battling the disease. It's what's called convalescent plasma. Mm -hmm. That's the liquid part of blood, the plasma, from donors who have had COVID and have developed antibodies. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration considers the treatment as still under investigation, but transfusing convalescent plasma into COVID-19 patients has shown promising results, including in Alaska. The Blood Bank of Alaska says it has distributed about 30 units of convalescent plasma to hospitals around Alaska with at least one person in Fairbanks attributing his recovery to infusions of convalescent plasma. And the Blood Bank is looking for more people to donate. Here is Quality Assurance Director Melissa Neared. With the increase in cases, we've had an increase in demand for the plasma. And so we've put out another call for people to come in. Neerit says the demand comes from doctors treating COVID patients with severe life-threatening infections. She says the blood bank sends a doctor convalescent plasma after the FDA gives its approval. Neerit says the screening process is the same as for any blood donor, except the blood bank also needs confirmation that the donor tested positive for COVID-19 and had a mild to severe case, meaning they're not looking for anyone who was asymptomatic. Uh, Neerid says the donor needs to have been fully recovered for about a month. So we want to know that you had it. We want to test results saying that you had it. And then we wait for 28 days after your last symptom. So if you want, uh, we'll talk about convalescent plasma. And um, if you want to donate, if you're not in, well, I don't know. Can, can people first uh, uh, donate? Do we have a, a blood bank? Here we don't. So if you're not in Kodiak, you can check out uh, bloodbankofalaska.org and, and, and check out uh, check it out from there. So um, and and I originally I did I, I heard about convalescent plasma, I think this past weekend when Brian Cranston, the star of Breaking Bad, came out and said that he is uh, he tested positive and he's uh, he had tested positive and he tweeted out sorry Twitter tweeted out a picture <laughs> of him donating plasma and so. Um, uh, uh, what would what what is convalescent plasma, and what yeah. what do you think? Yeah, so I mean the idea behind it is that um, you have these patients that have gotten COVID. It's it's almost like it's a similar idea to a vaccination, right? So like so um, you have um, 
a patient that's had COVID, they've developed antibodies, which are your body's protection against that virus. And now they've recovered. So they're making sure somebody doesn't have an active COVID infection <laughs> so that they don't take blood when they have an active COVID infection. But um, so then after they've recovered, they've made these antibodies, they take that plasma out from a, that patient, and then they can potentially give it to a patient who's actively fighting a COVID infection. Mm -hmm. And that will give them this, this immunity through that giving that plasma. And so the difference is, and I, I heard uh, Shanna say active versus pla uh, passive immunity, but like, so basically with you're doing the, when you do in, when the immunization comes out, I say when, when and if the immunization <laughs> comes out, that will be the same, basically give people the same type of, uh, you know, sort of protection would mm -hmm. be that they would, except their own body would make this protection. And hopefully with the immunization, it would be to prevent an infection or to make it a less severe infection versus this is somebody who's already had it. And so you're, you're giving it to them to give them that extra boost of immunity. Convalescent plasma has been around since the late 1800s, early 1900s, and they used to call it serum or antitoxin, and antitoxin is basically the antibodies that are produced by one's immune system against a particular bacteria. So like in Nome, when they had the, the first serum run for the diphtheria outbreak, they were actually bringing convalescent plasma to patients up there, and, and exactly, that was the earliest, um, well, the vaccines have, have existed for over 200 years, but the first, you know, medical science where they actually extracted antibodies from people and introduced mm. them into other people's blood. So it is a really old concept, and, and it definitely, I mean, you're basically using antibodies from someone else to, co to counteract the, sorry. <laughs> oh, no, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to counteract the infection mm. that is actively ongoing. And then exactly, so a vaccine, you're basically introducing a either dead or particle of the virus so that people or people's immune system will kind of attack it and then be ready for it if that infection ever returns or, or they actually get infected from the virus or bacteria, whereas this is actually just introducing antibodies that already exist from someone else's blood. So hmm. It's giving them a head, kind of giving them a, a head start, a, a quick, a quicker dose of it. Because if you do a vaccine, it takes the patient a while to develop that immunity versus yes. in, in the case of giving convalescent plasma in a patient that is acutely sick. That's, it's yeah. kind of just the timing of it is a little bit different in the, the process, but yeah. same concept hmm. in general. And it's kind of like with the, the convalescent serum or plasma, it's like when we give antibiotics to somebody with a bacterial infection, we're giving something to combat it right now, whereas like they said with the vaccines, you're making your body sensitive so that it can gear up if it's exposed to a potential infection in the future. So we're you know, actively trying to help these individuals. And the state's really pushing. I mean, when we do our clearance <coughs> letters for people, especially on the mainland, it has a whole paragraph in there about donating plasma and gives oh, okay. you all the nice. addresses and mm -hmm. the contacts of who to call. So. On that on that note, I, I have heard that the blood donations have been way down during the COVID pandemic too, and so just for people to be aware, if you are able to give blood, like and an if you're up in Anchorage and you're able to give blood, that is actually again some of the downstream effects of the COVID pandemic is that some of these things we always do, like mm. people aren't doing them because of, of COVID, and so so blood products are one thing that the state has been short on. And, um, and I think nationally that's been an issue. So just be aware of that. And if, if you're having to be in Anchorage and, and are willing to do that, it's, it's a labor of love, but it's well, it's much needed around the state. 
they they used to come down for for crab fest and, right um and they come I, down a couple times a year but of course this year yeah. not maybe yeah. who knows maybe they will come down for bring yeah. up lead mobile yep. when they come down hmm. in august Um, I had a, a, a question that has come in. It's kind of circling back to um, our first conversation about the infected seafood workers. Someone is asking, um, how did they get off the island without using commercial flights? They were chartered okay. And they were chartered actually here onto the island, too, directly to where they were working. So they never did pass through Kodiak. So that that's good for our, oh, okay. for our yeah. local city community. Right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yes, there are. Some Easy. charter companies doing pretty well these days. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, um, oh, let's talk about um, insomnia. Um, yeah. Um, so studies from the the NIH and the NSF they're sh they're showing um, high cases of insomnia, um, not just in um, uh, COVID patients, but in healthcare workers related to. Uh, not just COVID patients, but, you know, uh, their um, everyday pa patients um, related to anxiety and stress over the pandemic and the, the fallout of the uh, of the pandemic um, economic, you know, finance, uh, financial hardship, um, employment, unemployment, um, even kind of compounded with um, uh, 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 the uh, the protests that we've seen um, uh, down south. Um, in the NIH study, 39% uh, of um, healthcare workers have said they've been experiencing insomnia, and that's compared to also 20% of, of the patients that they've seen. So, um, what are the uh, what are the effects of of insomnia on on the body on on your health? Lack I think I think we can go a lot of directions with this. <laughs> you go ahead. Um. I was just going to say lack of sleep. I mean, there's a book called Why We Sleep, and lack of sleep can decrease your immune system up to 70%. You know, one night where you don't, where you get, you know, just a couple hours or four hours of sleep. So it is a significant impact on your body's, your whole system's ability to kind of recover and stay healthy. So it, sleep is extremely important. And I agree, I've seen so many patients in the last few months where insomnia is their chief complaint, more than normal, mm. for sure. And I think, yeah, definitely reading about healthcare providers and experiencing it probably somewhat ourselves to some extent. But yeah, uh, you were gonna say. Yeah, more. I mean, I think that there's the, um, you know, the physical, you know, effects of it, that there's also just the emotional and, mm -hmm. and mental health effects of it where, you know, we all know that if we're not getting sleep, we're not going to be patient with our mm. spouse, with our <laughs> kids, yeah. with, you know, and, and, you know, and you put on top of that, the, the reason why I think a lot of this is happening is because of the, people are already under stress. And, and so, um, you know, I think it is, again, I kind of come back to this whole concept of providing grace for others. And, and, and because you don't know what your coworker has gone through the last mm -hmm. few nights, you know, maybe their husband lost their job, you know, and they're, um, you know, feeling the effects of that. And, and so I, I think that, uh, and they're not sleeping well because of it in this case. So I, I just think that just being aware that uh, there's a lot of people struggling right now. And um, a lot of times that can manifest itself as not sleeping well, and that only perpetuates all those things. So I think that there's the physical, and then there's the emotional mm -hmm. and, and psychological. And um, I know that when I don't get a lot of sleep, um, 
the people around me know it. Oh yeah. You know. Oh yeah. And so, <laughs> um, so then that just adds, you know, adds to it, obviously. And then you try to make up for it with like caffeine, or um, which may not necessarily be the the best thing to compensate for. Uh, uh, for before that I'm, I'm a tea drinker so i got a little bit of, a little bit of caffeine yeah. um so i would encourage though people to so when it comes to sleep we can all do better like you know i tell people there's some things we call sleep hygiene mm -hmm. and i i counsel people on this all the time and i tell them you know this is one of those cases where you do what i say but maybe not as i do all the time because <laughs> i'm probably the worst at watching a screen right before i go to bed but like there's certain sure. things you can do to try and help your sleep that are behavioral, that don't require medicine. There are medicines for those that still struggle with it, but like mm -hmm. things like making sure you have kind of a bedtime routine, uh, making sure you're kind of going to bed around the same time, make sure you get in the summer that you get shades that that actually block out the light. Um, you know, things like not drinking caffeine after a certain time of the day, um, not eating right before you go to bed. There, there's, there's, if you look up online and you look up sleep hygiene, it's, you know, there's this mm -hmm. list like this long and I can usually say, oh shoot, Shoot, <laughs> right, shoot, right, you know, right. and so there's there's definitely like an element of um, looking at your behaviors. Uh, if you're struggling with sleep, even if it's kind of perpetuated by the anxieties and stresses of the life, there's still ways you can maybe better manage those things uh, without necessarily seeking medical help. Mm. Um, you know, and so just looking up those things and thinking about the ways you can they can fit into your life. Yeah, I agree, and I think make an appointment. We can do a telemedicine consult, and I think mindfulness is one of the most important, maybe mm -hmm. underutilized ways of trying to kind of get to sleep at night because in this moment, everything is okay. And, and I think, you know, when patient, when we kind of talk through that, it, the fears, our brains can go, you know, spiraling off into directions, but none of that is actually happening right now. And I think mindfulness is a really underutilized kind of mm. sleep remedy. And, and there is a lot that we can kind of talk about and offer resources sure. wise for patients, in addition to just really light, you know, easy sleep aids if they, you know, if people need it. But um, trying to avoid medication, I think, is, is also really important for the long term. Mm -hmm. but. And, you know, Evans brought it up several times. I wish he were here to comment. But getting outside, taking a yes. walk, doing, you know, d trying to maintain your emotional health. And certainly we're lucky in Kodiak you can get out, enjoy a beautiful day. Maybe it's rainy, but still get outside, do some exercise, mm -hmm. uh, which never hurts. And, you know, uh, w thinking about what Curtis was talking about, what do we do when we wake up? We grab our phones, <laughs> and, and but there's that that screen light stimulation probably is counterproductive. Yeah. You know, it, um, it might be better to have a book with low light and read to get mm -hmm. sleepy, not read on your uh, Kindle or that because that's a higher light sensitivity and it, it kind of stimulates your brain. Hmm. Yeah. The uh, the the borough has had a lot of conversations lately about. Um, you know, uh, legalizing edibles and some of the testimony is about THC and CDB as being a uh, uh, kind of, you know, non-medicinal sleep aid, um, as, you know, as part of the argument for, um, um, uh, for, for, for legalizing um, edibles. Is that, th does that track the C CDB, CDB, CBD? CDB. So <laughs> I can tell you just from the emergency medicine standpoint that uh, marijuana isn't, doesn't do, you know, I see people with high anxiety because they um, do a lot of THC. Mm. They don't sleep, they get 
you know, people say, well, you take it for nausea and vomiting, but it actually, there is a whole syndrome induced by it. So hmm. I think, like Shanna said, trying to rely on medications, whether they're prescription or not, as a way to um, accomplish sleep, probably there's, there's better ways. As, as with whiskey, right? Same, same thing. I've been around a long time. And we got a couple minutes left. So um, uh, uh, schools are um, set to reopen. There's some schools mm-hmm. um, uh, down south who I don't know why they're starting school the first week of August. That just sounds really bizarre to me. But, <laughs> um, but uh, uh, so with... Um, uh, school reopening. There's a picture from a school in Georgia that made its way through social media with like teenagers packed in this hallway with lockers. And I think it was kind of like a Where's Waldo? Like count how many kids are actually wearing masks. And I think it was four, four or five were actually wearing masks. Um, child um, hospitalizations down south are surging um, from COVID-19. There's a 23% increase in Florida and Arizona just with uh, just with kids. Um, some studies, uh, the study from South Korea and the CDC, um, older kids, teenagers, uh, most likely transmit COVID to their household at rates similar to adults. Um, younger kids transmit too. Um, of course they're not wearing masks or distancing, you know, at home. Um, uh, but, uh, the level of the virus in kids is at least as high as the level of the virus in adults. Um, which uh, I think might uh, seems a little uh, well. I don't know. I know. I think some people say, "Oh, kids are fine," but then there are others who say kids are cesspools of of, of this. So this kind of this kind of makes sense, right? That 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 kids would carry as as the, the same level of virus as they would um, as adults. Um, this one, I was wondering if you can explain it to me. Uh, this study uh, says that kids younger than five have a higher amount of viral RNA than adults do what does that mean (laughs) yeah i i think i actually read this study this past week and um so i think it's important to say this is one study um but it it tested people that were symptomatic and then they did what they they replicated the virus they see how many times they have to replicate the virus in order to get it to a point where they can detect it and so that tests how much virus what the viral load is essentially and with the younger kids that were symptomatic, like under five, they seemed to have higher viral loads, even though their symptoms didn't seem to be there. They kind of took all comers as far mm. as symptoms go. Um, now, that kind of goes against what we sort of think, what seems to be in in real life, what we're finding is that these smaller kids don't seem to be giving the virus, like uh, they don't seem to be uh, transmitting it at the same rate as the old, at least in the studies we have. So I guess I would caution us from saying, oh, boy, now these under five-year-olds, they're super transmissible. This is simply a test to see how much virus that these younger kids, based on age group, like how much viral load they had. Hmm. And so, um, but it would kind of be a strike against the fact that we don't think that these young kids have as much virus or that they're not, it, that they're not uh, contag- as contagious. Um, Although, like I said, it's a singular study, and it's hard to know exactly what to do with it because it didn't it didn't track how much they actually transmitted the virus, just just their viral loads at that point in time. So when we're testing viral load, we're actually detecting the RNA. Is that mm-hmm. what it? Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. 
Interesting. Um, I, I didn't know that that's actually what was actually, mm -hmm. you, you know, you think, oh, you tested high for it. You got a high viral load. It's like, oh, it's like I got a whole bunch of, I got a million of little guys just kind of running around yeah. in me. But, um, uh, 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 but aren't um, So kids do get infected. Um, they do have high levels of the virus. Um, uh, this other study says that, um, this one was really interesting. States with, um, who closed their schools early, um, this past March had reduced lower levels of COVID compared with states that even just like a day or two or even less than a week later closed their schools down. Alaska is in the, the lowest um, quartile um, because we were one of the first states to kind of uh, whose school districts, you know, started to close. Um, and then if you look down the list, um, even states that closed like on the we closed on the 16th. States that closed like on the 19th, the, the 18th, 19th, 20th um, uh, are in like the highest uh, quartile. So it's a uh, is that because we caught it uh, uh, quicker? I think that's kind of part of the argument. Um, well, I mean, when you look at the entire community, though, everything is getting shut down, you know. So is it the schools that were shut down early that made the difference? Or hmm. was it that we closed our restaurants and bars? Or was it that we closed every, you know, I, I think that that's... Um, too big a leap to make for just saying it's just related right. to the schools but and you have to remember back in march mm. which seems like decades right. ago we didn't have much covid in alaska we were like going mm. we don't want this so i don't think you can make that comparison mm. right. yeah i mean it's yeah. you know the other states down below they already had a high prevalence of it in their community whereas we didn't so you know we're preemptive and and I have to say that our school district is working very diligently to come up with plans they um, seek Elsa's input Curtis even Jones input on what you know and, and what's going on and so they're they're really I think on top of it mm -hmm. I, I think the whole state is and we are we are still currently at, at green at a green mm -hmm. low level even though it, uh, and Elsa, you can probably explain this. Why, why are we still at a green uh, level with uh, the increase of cases we've seen? Well, we've been really lucky because all of our cases have really been quickly isolated away from the community. And so we haven't had a lot of community transfer um, transmission, which is great. Um, and that's that's most likely why we're still considered a green once we if we get a bunch of cases that are odd cases around town we can't figure out where they came from they're not you know they're people who've been in town the whole time it then then we're going to start worrying and they have they've worked really hard to kind of make their levels of green yellow and red mm -hmm. for where we'll go but right now we are green i mean we have just one really active case in on the island and that's really good and we have the advantage of being an island too but mm -hmm. um, also that people work really closely together when we get a positive we get it so quickly that we can isolate somebody really fast you know in a lot of places it takes a while for it to get to epi you know for the positive to go to epidemiology and then epidemiology to sort it out and it mm. to get to the tracers and um, now they're asking physicians and other healthcare providers that are doing tests to ask their people to isolate you know and kind of putting that out there for them right away instead of waiting for a call from public health which may come mm -hmm, three right. or four <laughs> days later in places you know and then by then they've already passed it on to who 
All right. Well, I think that just mm. about does it for uh, the lowdown this week. Um, uh, thanks to Doctors uh, Shanna Theobald and Dr. Steve Smith and Dr. Um, Curtis Mortensen and to Elsa Harder public um, health officer and um, and uh, nurse here. So um, thanks again for spending your Wednesday morning with us. And um, listeners love the show and love what you have to say. So thank you so much for coming again. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. On 100.1 FM, you're listening to KMXT Kodiak. It's a beautiful day.